So I'm sure that you all have seen the cartoons. A prisoner waits before the firing squad. An execution, just a cigarette, please, he says, to calm my nerves. It's a small courtesy, a simple kindness easily granted. But the absurdity of the joke is that we all know that the inevitable will come in a moment. A volley of gunshots will ring out and the small courtesy, the simple kindness will be transformed into a hollow and ghoulish gesture. Now, maybe I take too many life lessons from the funny pages, but here's a piece of advice for you. If you ever find yourself a condemned man standing before a firing squad with one final request left to you, Don't ask for a cigarette. Ask for a pardon. The Apostle Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ have received a pardon. They are free to go. The firing squad is sent home. No final cigarette is needed. There won't be an execution today or ever for those who are in Christ. There are some people, very nice people, mostly outside the church, but also inside the church, who think of our faith, who think the gospel, who think that being a Christian is all about the cigarette and not about the pardon. They see our Christian faith as an oasis of courtesy and kindness before the inevitable moment when we shuffle off this mortal coil. And about what happens afterward, they shrug their shoulders in uncertainty and unconcern. These very nice people see Christianity as a this-world enterprise. One that is all about serving the community and comforting distressed souls and let eternity take care of itself. Religion as a self-help program, the church as a social service agency. Care for a cigarette before the shots ring out? When I was in seminary, I served as a chaplain intern at Abington Memorial Hospital. Now, you might think a hospital chaplain would have deathbed discussions about heaven and hell. You might think a hospital chaplain has regular come-to-Jesus conversations, but nothing can be farther from the truth. The supervisor of the chaplaincy program, and I believe that ours was no different from others, the supervisor of our chaplaincy program made it crystal clear to us that we were not there to proselytize. We were not there to convert. We were not there to explain what the scriptures teach or to promote what the church has always believed. Our job was to listen sympathetically to help patients explore and access their own faith resources and to support patients in their unique life journey wherever that may lead. Would you like your cigarette filtered or unfiltered? Do you prefer menthol or regular? Now don't misunderstand me. As Christians, we are called to grieve with those who grieve, to sit with those in pain. 
We're called to alleviate suffering and to bear the burdens of others. We are called to generosity and compassion, absolutely. But it is a total and diabolical misunderstanding of Jesus to think that all the gospel has to offer is the cigarette. Courteous and kind, though it may be, and not the pardon. Am I being too obscure? I hope I'm not preaching the right sermon to the wrong church or the wrong sermon in the right church. Sometimes it's hard to tell with the frozen chosen. John Piper writes, The essence of Christianity is that God is the supreme value in the universe. That we do not honor God as supremely valuable. That we are therefore guilty and under his omnipotent wrath. And he alone can rescue us from his own condemnation, which he has done through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. For everyone who is in Christ, knowing this, if we promote housing and jobs and health care and sobriety and family life minus this message, we are not Christian. We are cruel. Those who stand before the firing squad of God's omnipotent wrath don't need a final cigarette. They need to hear the good news that a complete and total pardon is available to those who are in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God. This morning we continue our sermon series through Paul's epistle to the Romans. It seems like we've been reading and rereading those same verses at the end there of Romans chapter 7. They're very important verses. And this morning to to those verses we've added a couple verses from chapter 8. For the rest of this sermon, I want to dig into a single two-word phrase from Romans chapter 8. That phrase is, in Christ. It shows up twice in our readings this morning, back to back, in verses 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ, Jesus, from the law of sin and death. This expression in Christ and its equivalents, there are a number of equivalents in him, in the Lord, uh, shows up in the New Testament at least 242 times. 242. That's a lot. This is a really important idea. And I don't want anyone to leave here today without understanding this important Christian idea. Being in Christ is one of the basic essential ideas of the New Testament. And we actually miss the entire meaning of Scripture if we don't wrap our mind around this one idea. And each and every person needs to be able to answer for themselves the most important question in the world. Am I in Christ? The technical theological term for being in Christ is union with Christ or identification with Christ. This is a very deep doctrine. We will only scratch the surface today. We're going to revisit this uh, in the future. 
But let me begin by saying that union with Christ or identification with Christ or being in Christ is a work of the Holy Spirit. Explaining to his disciples what will happen when they would later receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in that day when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. You in me is how Jesus describes his disciples' future Holy Ghost-powered relationship with himself. You in me, union with Christ, identification with Christ. Jesus uses a whole bunch of different images and metaphors to explain how we are in Christ, but the one that's probably most familiar to us is the vine and the branches. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. I hope you see the stark contrast that Jesus draws between those who are in Christ and those who aren't. Jesus says the one will bear much fruit and the other will be thrown into the fire. This is a life and death difference, which is why it's important to be able to answer the question for ourselves, am I in Christ? Our union with Christ is comprehensive According to scripture, we are identified with Christ at each crucial stage in Christ's redemptive history. To begin, the believer is identified with Christ in his death. We have been united with him in a death like his, Paul writes in Romans 6, 5. But we're also identified with him in his resurrection. You have been raised with Christ, Colossians 3, 1. The believer is identified with Christ in his ascension. God being rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And also in his reign. If we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And the believer is even identified with Christ in Christ's glory. We are children of God and fellow heirs with Christ that we may be glorified with him. Death and resurrection and ascension and reign and glory. These are five high points of our union and our identification with Christ. All of this identification with Christ, however, all of this union with Christ, all of this being in Christ rests upon our identification with Christ in the cross. Here's how Paul explains it. For our God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that's Jesus, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Believe it or not, this one verse is the gospel in a nutshell. We should, what what should have happened to us happened to Jesus. 
And what we should have been doing, Jesus did for us. Our sin falls on Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus falls on us all by being in Christ, all by union with Christ. Now there are two parts to this work of the cross. The first part is that Christ dies for our sin. By divine and eternal law, sin requires a penalty of death. And even God, who is unchanging and always true to himself, cannot remove that requirement. God is the author of the law. And God's law reflects his own mind, his own heart, and his own holiness. He can no more gloss over or ignore his law than he can gloss over or ignore his own nature. God doesn't ignore our sin, and God certainly doesn't ignore his law. What God does instead is take upon himself the penalty required by his law for our sin. God is the lawgiver. God is the judge. And God also, in Christ, is the sacrificial lamb who bears the wrath of that law on our behalf. At the cross, God did not ignore our sin. God did did not ignore his own law. Rather, at the cross, God placed the full penalty of our sin on himself in Christ Jesus. We are pardoned of our sin, not because the lawgiver said, oh, never mind, it's no big deal. We are pardoned of our sin because the lawgiver paid the penalty himself. So, side one of the work of the cross is that Christ dies for our sin. By union with Christ, by identification with Christ, our sins are placed on him and he dies the death that we deserve to die. Side two is that the full righteousness of Jesus is credited to us. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus fulfilled the law of God. He never sinned. He never did anything wrong or evil. He actively did whatever the law required. He did everything right and good. And guess what? By union with Christ, by identification with Christ, we are credited with that perfect record of righteousness. It is Mind-blowing, if you can wrap your mind around this idea. And let me add to the mind-blowingness of that truth that the Bible tells us that divine favor and blessing are given to everyone who keeps God's law. So not only do we receive a perfect record of Christ, we also receive all of God's favor and blessing that goes with that perfect record. In the identification with Christ, in union with Christ, two things happen. Sometimes we call this the double exchange. Christ gets our sin and the punishment that goes with our sin, and we get Christ's perfect righteousness and all the blessings that go with that righteousness. Now, if that double exchange doesn't seem fair to you, you're right. It's not fair. If we are in Christ, we don't get what's fair. We don't get what we deserve. We get better than we deserve. We get mercy and grace and blessing and favor instead of wrath and judgment. Thanks be to God. All by union with Christ, all by being in Christ. 
In his epistle to the Romans, Paul begins by pointing out that everyone has a sin problem. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Atheists and pagans, of course, we know they fall short of the glory of God. But also well-meaning religious people too. Church people, elders, pastors, they don't meet God's standard either. When Paul says that all have sinned, he really does mean all. And the problem kicks in when we realize that the wages of sin is death. And so when Paul tells us that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, we get a glimmer of hope. You and I are sinners. God condemns and he executes sinners, which means we've got this problem, a problem that we are actually incapable of fixing ourselves. But fortunately, God is merciful and God intervenes on our behalf, doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. Paul explains it this way. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The gospel reveals a righteousness that is based not on works, not on good deeds, but that is based on faith through and through. The gospel reveals that we can stand before God without fear, not because of what we've done or because of our own record, but because of our faith in Christ who has done it all for us. And so Paul can triumphantly announce there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By union with Christ, by being in Christ, two big things happen for us. One is that the death of Christ pays the entire penalty for our sin. And two is that the life Christ lived is credited to our account. And if we are in Christ, there is no condemnation. There is only God's favor and blessing. Thanks be to God. This is the good news of the gospel. All right, so that is my rambling explanation of union with Christ. We're going to revisit this doctrine again in the future. It's an important one, and I wanted you to at least get a first hearing on this. But this morning, let me close by reminding you of the most important question in the world. A question that each and every individual has to answer for themselves, and that question is, am I in Christ? Paul says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, which is a powerful reassurance and a a comfort to know that the God and the creator of the entire universe is for us and is blessing us and is looking uh, upon us with favor because we're in Christ. But we need to ask, am I in Christ or does God's condemnation remain on me? Jesus said, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Am I in Christ? It's a question with eternal consequences. Now being in Christ is more than just knowing certain facts about Jesus. Being in Christ is even more than believing certain doctrines. 
The Bible tells us that the devils in hell know and believe and tremble, but it doesn't do them any good. Being in Christ, as I've already said, is a work of the Holy Spirit. It is a work that transforms our whole being, our heart, and our mind, and our spirit. Am I in Christ? If you ask the man standing before the firing squad, are you in Christ? And if his answer is yes, thanks be to God, then the firing squad goes home. And the prisoner is set free and the fatted calf is prepared and the eternal party begins. But if the answer is anything but yes, all we can do is offer him a cigarette. Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus said, the son of man came to seek and to save those who were lost. There is no question Jesus wants us to be in him. And to do that, we have to repent. We have to turn aside from our old life and turn to Christ and start a new life, a new life that's in Christ. And so my question is, where are you? This morning, are you in Christ? Or are you somewhere else? If you're in Christ, then know there is for you no condemnation. Not now, not ever. You are the adopted son or daughter of the Most High God. You are loved and blessed and favored. And nothing will ever come between you and the love of God in Christ. But if you are still outside of Christ at this point, then I invite you to come in. There's room for everyone in Christ. And I have yet to meet a person who has come in from the outside and regretted that decision. My call to you this day is to be in Christ. Let us pray. Father God, you are our maker. And your son is our redeemer. And your Holy Spirit is our enabler. And so we pray this day that having heard your eternal word proclaim that your Holy Spirit would enable us to hold on to it, to believe it, to trust in Christ, to lean into Christ so that he might be our Savior. Father God, we pray that you would continue to pursue us and to seek us out because you love us. We pray that Jesus would bring us into the fold. Lord, this day give us the faith to believe and to be a part of Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite